most people don't really have the tools to understand how software really works. So it becomes this question of like, are the robots going to take my job or not? And like, that's not the question. Like the answer to that is yes. The question is, how do we make an equitable and just society when we have to coexist with those robots? You know, and, and that, that to me is the question that's not really being asked. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interview Fred Stephen Smith. He's the CEO of Rainforest QA. And in this episode, we talk about quality assurance and what the heck is going on with software today. In this episode, we talk about everything from automation to the pitfalls of releasing software too quickly and the problems that can create, and then dive into the psychology and philosophy of how we're building our software and the future of our society. This is an amazing episode, so please stay tuned. This episode of Hacker Noon is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers learning how to build and scale high-performance web apps on the simplest cloud platform. With a flat pay-as-you-go pricing structure and monthly caps across all global data centers, DigitalOcean makes it easy to get the computer resources you need without the billing surprises you get from other cloud providers. Discover why developers love DigitalOcean and get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash hackernoon. Full-stack developer Austin Pocus. We're using it to host a discourse site. So basically, they give us a machine and we run a dockerized instance of discourse on there. It's a few clicks and discourse is ready to rock. With DigitalOcean, they have a marketplace where you just click, I want discourse. You provision a droplet and you're good to go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Fred. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Fred, and uh, I'm the one of the co-founders and the CEO of a company called Rainforest. Um, we are building AWS for quality, basically a way to figure out what bugs are in your software before you release it to customers. And yeah, we've been working on it for about seven years. Awesome. Yeah, this is a major issue in the tech industry because we've had major tech companies release software lately with like significant bugs, uh, like the FaceTime one really comes to mind. So tell us a bit about how you're solving that problem. Yeah, totally. So basically, seven years ago, we saw, okay, uh, everyone is moving to continuous delivery. Everyone is shipping software every day, every hour. And at some point, it's just impossible to keep up with all the testing you need to do. And so we realized like, okay, someone needs to solve this problem and being a good enterprising folks that we are, we decided we would try. Um, so basically what we did was we built a, a kind of a crowd approach. Um, so you can think of like an Uber type model. Um, we have about 60,000 testers who are all over the world who do testing for our customers. And you know, much like with Uber, where the focus is on the ease of use and the ease of interaction between the driver and the customer, um, we do the same thing. But for us, it's all about the API. So our customers, they never speak to a tester. They never you know, pick up the phone or anything. They hit our API anytime, 24-7, and we will have sent, you know, 500 to a couple thousand testers through all of the kind of applications features within about 30 minutes. We'll kind of collect all those responses, we'll build a bug report, and we'll kind of pipe that back to our customer through the API as well. And so, you know, through doing this, our hope and, and some of our customers' experiences that you get this kind of best of both worlds where you want to get the sense of 
how your users are actually experiencing your application. So human feedback is important, but on the other hand, you know, speed is king. Um, and so, or, or queen. And so you end up in this interesting trade-off of do I move fast and break things or do I move slower and break less things, you know? And so that is really the fundamental challenge, the fundamental question at the heart of how we build software today. And it's exactly why Apple shipped the FaceTime bug. It's exactly why, sadly, two planes, um, two Boeing planes crashed because the software was buggy. You know, they, they are prioritizing speed um, and competitiveness in the marketplace over quality. Um, and it's just, I think it just speaks to the lack of great tooling that exists today that people have to make those kind of trade-offs. Yeah. And when we were, before we were recording, we were talking a little bit about uh, automation and how, you know, a lot of these processes people are trying to automate, but at the end of the day, you know, you kind of have to get people involved still. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting conundrum, right? The, the holy grail, of course, is that you can have robots, um, realistically simulate how your human users behave. But as we all know today, sadly, robots are still dumb and humans are still uh, infinitely complex. And while we're designing software to be used by humans, there will always be that trust issue when you have robots telling you, yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> but then you're like, okay, but I'm still going to run into bugs, right? Of course, Apple has extensive automated testing with robots doing all kinds of funny stuff with FaceTime but they still didn't catch that bug that they shipped, right? And so at the end of the day, there has to be some blend of human and machine. Um, our approach, we hope, is the right balance there. And, you know, at the end of the day, right, if customers today, and ironically talking about Apple, Apple's hugely contributed to this, just humans today expect high-quality software, and we expect it to be intuitive. We expect it to work flawlessly, um, and if it doesn't, you can see how quickly it impacts a customer's reputation. So it's a really, really interesting conundrum. And it's complicated by the fact that in, in QA, at least, in our little kind of slice of the software world, um, we haven't really seen any of the major waves of innovation that have happened over the last two or three decades. And so QA is really an industry that's on the back foot right now. You know, it's really an industry that's trying to catch up. And sadly, a lot of the larger tech companies have basically said, as, as we've seen, you know, screw it, right? Like, we'll just, we'll just move fast and break things, right? The famous Mark Zuckerberg quote. So it's a very interesting time to be in software, as, as of course you know. Well, and it just, it creates so many challenges for these companies because, you know, they're ultimately like the FaceTime bug and, you know, the, the, the Boeing plane crashes, like, I mean, it has privacy concerns in some situations. It has real world consequences. I mean, this can kill people. Um, and unfortunately, people did lose their lives because of a software bug. I mean, there was a hardware failure and sensors that also were a component to this, but it was ultimately yeah. the software that the pilots weren't aware of that, you know, had they known what to do in the event of this software trigger and failure, they could have righted the plane. But because they didn't know that there was software trying to take control of the situation, the plane just nosedived into the ground. So, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, it, it is horrifying. It's, it's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's, and, and that's honestly just this idea of move fast and break things just writ large, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, Boeing made those decisions because they didn't want to have to retrain pilots on the new version of the, of the 737, right? And so the, the reason they put that software fix in place, which turned out to be like a cap, catastrophically bad idea, the reason they put that in place was so that it would behave the same as the old 
um, as the old 737, so pilots wouldn't have to retrain. And at the end of the day, they were choosing to move fast and break things, but they just crossed their fingers and hoped that stuff didn't break. Um, so yeah, I mean, and, and to the conversation we had before the start of the recording, I, I think a lot of this speaks to just the, the deeper and deeper penetration of software into our daily lives and into our society. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people would be quite shocked if they actually peeled away the layers and realized how little is being done to make sure that that software works as intended before it hits their, you know, their phones or in some cases their, their, you know, cockpit control computer. So it's a, it's a really scary time. I think if you start thinking, you know, you start going down the rabbit hole of automation that, that you can start to get pretty, pretty nervous. Well, and you know, we've, we're at a point now where 5g is about to be implemented. We're moving into this era of internet of things I know we've been talking about IoT for like a decade, but like it's mm-hmm. actually starting to, to come here now. Like these devices are shipping now, finally. Um, yeah. So, you know, what happens when your fridge has a programming error and just stops cooling your food or, <laughs> you know, your car decides, uh, no, you're not making that left. I don't want you to, um, you know, these are, yeah. these are serious serious concerns uh, as we move forward here is you know what what happens if the software's not written correctly exactly and and i think the interesting thing with the plane piece as well is that planes is one of the few areas where software has basically taken it to the point where the plane is basically unflyable without a computer you know and if you look at like the f22 project if you look at the eurofighter in in europe um, and increasingly now the the jetliners they're not actually flyable by a human because they, the aerodynamics are so wonky and the plane is so unstable. And so I just think that, you know, that's this kind of v- vision of what's to come, right? Because it's not going to be that long until the more self-driving cars, there's no steering wheel, right? And so what happens when, when that stops working? Like if you've driven a Tesla with the kind of self-driving mode, you know, right? When it drops out of self-driving mode, there's no warning. It's just like, and then you're driving it, you know? And like, I've seen friends kind of, you know, writing their emails or whatever, and then that happens and you're kind of heading towards the the central barrier on the highway. I mean, it's going to be a very interesting decade for humans, I think. This episode of Hacker Noon is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers learning how to build and scale high-performance web apps on the simplest cloud platform. With a flat pay-as-you-go pricing structure and monthly caps across all global data centers, DigitalOcean makes it easy to get the computer resources you need without the billing surprises you get from other cloud providers. Discover why developers love DigitalOcean and get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash hackernoon. Full stack developer Austin Pocus. We're using it to host a discourse site. So basically they give us a machine and we run a dockerized instance of discourse on there. Gets a few clicks and discourse is ready to rock. With DigitalOcean, they have a marketplace where you just click, I want discourse. You provision a droplet and you're good to go. Yeah, I mean, the plane thing really kind of gets me because when I was a kid, I I wanted to be a pilot. Like, I thought that was really cool. I was really into, like, flight simulators and stuff. Um, But, like, and I remember as a kid, I I flew quite a bit uh, back and forth between, like, L.A. and San Francisco. And, you know, the pilots from when I was a child were amazing. I mean, former Vietnam vets, like, people who had been flying for 20, 30, 40 years – 
um, I, you know, I experienced some of the best pilots possibly that I've ever had. I'm horrified when I get on a plane now. Um, every time I get on a plane now, I'm like, I'm like looking like, how old is my pilot? Like, I know, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, it is not the same experience. Uh, you know, I, I felt like when I was a kid, like a human being was in control of that plane and knew yeah. what to do in the yeah. event of certain things. And yeah. then I've been in, I've been on flights lately where like a wind blows and you can totally tell the plane is on autopilot and it doesn't know how to correct itself. And it doesn't. So the whole plane just kind of like, you have this moment where you're just like your stomach, like just kind of like rises up and you're like, Whoa, like, and that didn't used to happen when you had a human being who would react when you had a human being who used to sit there and react to that moment. It was a different experience. Now you have software reacting to that moment and the software, it's, it's not the same. It's slower. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't correct. It, it takes, it does correct eventually, but like not at the same speed at which a human can just go, whoop, like we're going to correct here. Um, yep. and I've, yep. I've had something, I, I've been in some flights where like, you know, a breeze will kind of take the plane off course and then you can feel the pilot like coming in and trying to correct it. And you can see mm-hmm. that battle between the software and the human. Um, yeah. and it's, it's a, I mean, that's a crazy experience. And most people who are probably on those flights don't understand that that's what's happening is there's a human being battling both the elements and the software at the same time, because these planes pretty much fly themselves. Now there was a situation at uh, SFO in San Francisco where I was just going to bring it up. The Asiana yeah, one, right? was, uh, yeah. the software was wrong and yeah. they missed the runway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that speaks exactly to this point we're talking about, right? Which is that at some point, the, the operators of, of these, these kind of super complex, highly automated systems, you basically become an engineer. Like really, you should be a real-time troubleshooting engineer. And sadly, as you say, right, we're, we're in this transition from these kind of like decorated military type pilots who are like all about the hands-on and in many ways had learned on physical systems, right? I'm, I'm midway through my PPL and I'm le- uh, my private pilot's license and I, I'm learning on a 1970s Cessna, right? And that's wires. <laughs> that's yeah. wires connecting stuff, right? Like you, if you can't turn the wheels because there's like, you know, it's a, a twig in the, in the aileron or whatever, but you know, we're moving from that to these more folks who grew up probably like you and I did when we were obsessing about planes as kids, like with the flight sims. And the flight sims have the computers. The flight sims have all of the autopilot stuff. And so you see this interesting crossover, right, it happening in aviation, which is probably super applicable to the broader software world, which is, you know, you're going from these people who really deeply understood the systems because they were comprehensible by a single human. To the point where you can never understand everything sitting in a cockpit. We'll never understand everything sitting in a Tesla. I mean, it's a, a single human brain just to just to truly deeply understand a single component of that system today. And it seems like we haven't yet made the pivot uh, as a society to really deeply embracing that. And I think we see the impacts of that across aviation. We see it in software. We see it um, across the world. And I think you know it's a very very interesting place to be when we also have this clear skills gap in our societies, right? Where we're not really able to retrain people quickly in the course of a single lifetime. And yet it's very clear that more and more, the kind of jobs that you and I do, the kind of jobs that a lot of people probably listening or watching this do, a large components of those can start to be taken away by robots and done more efficiently. And so I think that's a central philosophical and political question that that needs to be answered is, 
you know, how do how do we create a society that's resilient to those kind of changes when, you know, for millennia society has been tied to basically technological innovation and we've just been on this kind of you know this mm -hmm. flat curve and now we're hitting the the, the parabolic inflection point and it's like it's kind of it's it we can't just carry on a business as usual and as we've seen in the world over the last kind of five years right the, this world is reacting against it and i mean that not to go too far off this tangent here but like i mean the coal miners in in wherever they are in, in America, apparently they still exist. Like these coal miners, they're not like really saying the future is coal. They're just saying like, what the hell am I supposed to do if there's no coal job, right? Like yeah. they're not really betting that the future of the world is about coal power, but it's more, I think, a reaction to this idea of like, well, how, like I, I'm just going to go and learn to become a computer programmer. Is that the play here? Yeah. You know, so I, it's, a, it's a scary thing to, to comprehend how this society is able to not leave the majority of people behind as we make this shift. Well, and it's not just coal miners. I mean, we've seen layoffs in journalism. Uh, yep. You know, the yep. major, I, I just did an episode with, uh, with Christina Warren. She formerly was with Gizmodo and Mashable. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And we talked about like kind of the journalism apocalypse uh, that's taking place. I mean, this is happening in multiple industries all over, you know, all over from journalism to even software development itself. I mean, you brought up a really interesting point is, you know, what you described is also happening in software because someone who's 19 today, who's mm -hmm. learning to code, they're not learning to code the same way that probably you and I started to play around with this stuff when we were younger. Like, you know, I had to go learn like raw HTML and like learn like foundational like programming languages. They can just jump right in today as a 19 year old and start using mm -hmm. APIs and they can start connecting things and they've got yep. lot software libraries that they can just download. Like they don't need to worry about a tech stack. They can just launch a Docker container. Like, you know, there's the, the technologies evolve so quickly and so rapidly that you don't even need to learn like the basics of computer programming anymore. You can skip that and immediately just start developing applications and building things because we have all these software libraries and, We've got all these new software systems that do all of these advanced things for you. So now it's just learning a particular software library rather than necessarily learning how to code from scratch. So Totally, totally. And without true. that first principles background, then when you get to actually troubleshooting, then yeah. you start to run into like, oh, well, actually, it's this layer of the stack that I'm implicitly using is not talking correctly to this layer. And then you basically just have to hope that the engineers who are building the stacks themselves are actually smart enough and good enough to do the right kind of unit testing. I, I mean, to me, this brings to mind the political theory thing, right? You know, good old Marx. I mean, at the end of the day, this is about alienation. And mm -hmm. you need to be connected to the means of production. And in a way, what we're seeing here, right, is a shift away from that, right? As, we, as the, the factories of software get more and more complex and leveraged, the workers in the factory end up having no real idea what the raw inputs are, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating conundrum. Often they don't even know what they're building. Uh, I, I've seen and heard that from num like a number of engineers, you know, they'll be assigned a project, they'll work on one little part of a project in isolation. And then they don't know that when they're done, someone's going to take that code and apply it to something completely else. And right. That happens so often at a lot of these startups, a lot of these yeah. major tech companies. 
um, where the engineers who are building some of these things don't even know what they're building. Um, yeah. They just they have a particular skill set. They work on you know one component of it. So like an analogy is like you know it would be just kind of like a mechanic who only specializes on tires. Like you know they're yeah. only working on how the tire connects to the wheel well and that's it. Um, and they don't know that, Hey, there's an engine and this has a steering wheel and it's a car. Um, so that's, I I've seen that as well, because with software, you can kind of divide up certain tasks and you can over-specialize in one area over the other. And then it, it kind of leads to a situation where the pieces aren't really coming together. And that's really, I think where QA comes into play is making sure that all of those things are actually talking to each other properly. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's the interesting thing, because when we when we first started Rainforest in, in 2012 and when we started raising money from investors, it was kind of this like skeptical response, like, isn't this a solved problem? Like we have unit testing, every layer is tested, like everything should be fine. Right. And it was like, I think the thing that no one really anticipated was the level and degree of specialization that you talk to that would happen mm-hmm. and how quickly it would happen. And, you know, you look inside a larger software company, even a company of our size, about 140 people, you see that there are people who work on this very, very specific part of the stack because that is a highly specialized role and that's what they enjoy doing. But as you say, they end up living such abstract lives, so disconnected from the business and from the end user. That's one of the big problems we have to solve today in our culture, actually, it, within Rainforest is you know making sure that everyone understands why they're working on this thing and how it's connected to the broader business. And if that's really hard at 140 people, I can't even imagine once you get to the global enterprise level when you have tens of thousands of people. I mean, it's almost certain to me that the FaceTime bug, you know, there was no one team, even one part of the organization that was responsible for that. It's almost certainly the, the end result of a collision of many different teams where mm-hmm. no one really knew how to test all of those edges. And I think that's the interesting thing, right? As we get more leverage from these complex interdependent systems, you end up with a bigger need for testing, not, not a lower need, right? And so, yeah, yeah that's, that's the problem that, that ultimately we're trying to help, help our customers with. And you know, I've seen the I've seen this de-evolution of software um, that you know has kind of plagued us lately. Um, it, from and it's both you know Windows, Microsoft. It's also Apple and Mac OS. Um, yep. You know, I've seen a de-evolution take place over the last few years, where things that were always reliable, things that always used to work in the past, are now breaking. And yep. the complexity that we're bringing to software is often unnecessary um, because, you know, the amount of raw computing power that we all have at our hands and our fingertips today is unimaginable compared to where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, you know, I still remember my old iMac with that like 12 gig hard drive that sounded like a train down an alleyway uh, <laughs> that had a 400 megahertz processor. Um, you know, yep. my iPhone today has like, I don't know, a hundred plus computing power capacity. Like, I mean, it's insane. The, you know, we've got multiple core processing, we've got all this graphic capability and now it's, you're holding it in your hand Mm -hmm. and we've got all this advanced technology now, but the software hasn't, it hasn't necessarily caught up to take advantage of that. And if anything, it's almost been neutered by the fact that, you know, we have all this power so now we're we're writing lazy software because we know the hardware can handle it instead of yeah. writing optimized software that says, hey, let's not use 100% of the CPU for this task. 
Yeah. And, you know, as a, I agree. And as a candidate who I was speaking to for one of our exec roles said to me recently, and it's a quite a dystopian thing to say, but I, it really resonated with me nonetheless. Uh, you know, whatever that says about me, who knows? But, you know, he referred to the problem as a wetware problem, right? Referring to the human users of the software. And I agree with you, right? The, 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 the exponential, um, kind of improvement in hardware has meant that we become sloppier with software. And a lot of the problem is the wetware itself, right? The human users who are creating the software, because at the end of the day, you know, much as we've seen in, in some of the controversies around the bias um, inherent within AI, which is coded by humans and trained on data sets that themselves contain human bias, at the end of the day, these, these systems are a product of us, right? And, and all of our own insecurities and all of our own you know, biases and, and issues get fundamentally translated into the systems that we build. Um, and I think that you know, we haven't really yet figured out you know, not to go back to the Marx thing, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. we haven't really figured out how we interface with software and how we interact um, with software in the broader sense of like, what are we comfortable offloading to a machine? You know, what are we comfortable, you know, having less efficient, but with more subjectivity or with a human in the loop, you know, and we're, we're, we're having to solve a lot of these problems on this very micro scale applied to this very specific problem of quality. But I think that in general, this is a scary thing to me that we touched on in the conversation before as well, which is that's not really a conversation that's happening within society today. And I think largely because most people don't really understand because they don't have the tools to understand how software really works. And yeah. so it becomes this question of like, are the robots going to take my job or not? And like, that's not the question. <laughs> like the answer to that is yes, right? <laughs> the question is, <laughs> the question is, how do we make an equitable and just society when we have to coexist with those robots, you know, and, and that, that to me is the question that's not really being asked. No, and it, it's because we have this technical divide, unfortunately, between our legal yeah. system, our judiciary systems, our society, you know, just like we talk about, you know, some people talk about like the wealth inequality gap. We have a technology inequality gap that yes. is, it, it's a global problem. Uh, and the people who are the software engineers who are working on these solutions, like we get it, we're, we're, we're working on this stuff daily. Uh, yeah. but if you're not, you know, working on these kinds of projects and if you're not at the edge of, you know, where technology is at this moment, you don't understand what's coming. Uh, it, you know, and that changes, I mean, it's changed my political philosophy because, you know, I used to be a little more on the capitalistic side. And now I'm thinking, wait, like this isn't going to work soon. Um, because once the machines automate these processes where, where I don't see where the people can fit into this equation to be able to actually sustain themselves, uh, and, you know, continue to have jobs and make money and like all of these things. I mean, even I'm looking at, you know, all these different AI solutions for new projects and things that I'm working on. And, I'm already thinking in terms of how can I automate this? How can I automate this? How can I automate this? How can I do this without having to get people involved? But by doing that, I'm eliminating jobs. I'm eliminating opportunities. And right. if I'm thinking this way, I can yeah. imagine that most of Silicon Valley and most of the tech industry is also thinking this way. And yeah. how long before there are no jobs? And how long yeah. before the computers start programming themselves and even the engineers who started doing all of these things like <laughs> have 
outcoded themselves. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And this is a fundamental question. Isn't it? I mean, the, you know, the one thing that is, I guess, the one, the one glimmer of hope I have with regards to this whole trend is is encapsulated well with a friend of mine who basically the 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 short version of the story is through Etsy she was able to um, get access to distribution for her very arbitrary or not arbitrary but very niche line of products which was basically like fancy dog collars um, like handmade and artisanal and organic leather and all that good stuff and she was selling them in like farmers markets on the weekend alongside her successful corporate job and Etsy gave her the access to this distribution and she got you know retweeted by someone or whatever. And like, bang, that's her full-time job. Like she now has a small business. And, you know, when I go and see her, she's got like a little workshop now. And so, you know, I, 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 in general, she doesn't want more orders, so I won't share her name. But, <laughs> she, you know, to me, that was actually, and I might be kidding myself here, right? That might not be replicable and that might be an extreme edge case outcome. But to me, that was, that was like this glimmer of hope of like, oh, wow. Okay. Once we're able to start to use technology to, to disintermediate the kind of human side, then actually it creates these new opportunities where folks that might have lent into art or design or creativity or helping others through education as, as you're doing, you know, that distribution enabled through technology and the fact that you have so many of the kind of BS automated, right. You, yeah. To run a packaging business, you like, you now need Shopify, yeah. <laughs> right. And before you needed to raise 10 million bucks and hire 30 people. And so, you know, to me, that's like a glimmer of hope of like, is this, you know, the, I guess the utopian vision of technological change in our society would be, you end up with everyone empowered as their own mini CEO of their own lives and all of that kind of stuff. But I mean, Trent, what's your take on that? Because I think there's pros and cons there, right? And to, to some extent, you're living it. Yeah, what's I mean, your experience are, been? There are pros and cons. So, I mean, I got into podcasting for exactly the reasons you just presented because I realized this automated feature is coming uh, mm -hmm. and the conversation you and I are having right now cannot be done with AI. And if it was done with AI, it would not be the same quality and people wouldn't connect with it and it wouldn't have the same authenticity. So I realized because this, this change is coming, uh, I needed to up my game and I needed to evolve because I knew that the tasks of me standing in front of a computer, coding, working on projects. I mean, I tell people like, I don't even really code anymore um, because I know that that's going to be obsolete in the future. So mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to, you know, what can I do as a human being to help other human beings? Um, because that ultimately is where you create value for others. And that's yeah. why I started doing a podcast and I started learning how to do this. Cause when I first yeah. started podcasting, I was nervous. Like I had a pit in my stomach. Like I didn't know what I was doing. Like, Oh, am I going to say the wrong thing? Like, you know, what happens if I do, it's like, oh yeah, you can just edit it, but whatever. Um, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> so there were, there were moments like that where, you know, this was something totally new for me. I'd never done before. So I'd been a writer, I'd been a journalist, I had been a tech startup CEO. Um, so I've, I've been involved in startups. I've worked for enterprise companies. So I've seen this like full spectrum of the tech industry, both as a startup founder working at enterprise companies as well as, you know, doing the journalism stuff and publication stuff. And I was like, what is, you know, the, the writing side of it, even that can be automated. But this right here, this conversation can't be. Yeah. 
So I, I, I went into this for exactly the same reasons that you were just presenting is because mm -hmm. I knew that if I can establish myself in this way to educate, inform, uh, you know, and let people know what's going on and have these kinds of conversations, maybe I can have an impact and create value. And eventually that will have some kind of positive monetary outcome for me. Yeah. Because um, yeah. if I can get successful enough at it, that'll, that'll become something. So it's much like the example you use where, you know, the right retweet or the right, you know, the right situation pre presents itself and, you know, the show takes off and gets a bunch of viewers and we get more sponsors and those are the kinds of things that can happen. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that's how I'm looking at it. And that's how, you know, is what do I personally need to do to prepare for this automated future? Because it, it's here. It's, it's not yeah. coming. It's here. Yeah. You heard it here, folks. First, folks, star podcast. <laughs> no, no, but I, I totally agree with you, man. I totally agree. And it, you also bring up, and I, I won't run run far with this, but just to, to make a point, you also bring up a great point tangentially, which is that, you know, as more and more of the transactional elements of building a business, let's say, start to get automated or automatable, what, what becomes the true differentiator? It becomes human relationships and your ability to connect with other humans, right? And to me, that was the really fascinating thing, not to pull in too many controversies, here, but that was the fascinating thing with that Google engineer that wrote that kind of you know sexist memo or the you know, the sexist controversy memo, and it was like, yeah, dude, sure. Statistically speaking, you might be right that like you know men are more, and I don't even know if it's true, but just to, to run with it, you might be right that men are statistically more performant at like math and science, right? Mm -hmm. But you're also totally missing the point. That's not how you build great products through a yeah. bunch of mathematicians sitting in the room calculating. You build great products from speaking to your users. And to connect with your users, you need to be a human with social <laughs> skills, you know? And so that was the funny thing to me missing in that whole conversation was like, it's not that the points were wrong. It's just that they're this tiny subset of what you need to build amazing software and great companies. And I think you, you make this point fantastically by being like, look, I need to focus in on what differentiates me. And, and as you say, in, in this modern context where automation is already here, at the end of the day, what differentiates us is our, our humanity. Um, and, and I think that's a, a very, very important lesson for everyone to try and figure out how they can apply it to their own lives. Yeah. And, you know, we're on the Hacker Noon podcast, so I've got to ask, what is some time in your life that you've had to hack something? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this. I have a really, really bad answer, honestly, and this probably is not going to be popular. But the, my answer, honestly, is I focused from the very first day when we started Rainforest on building a very small number of genuine human relationships. And that seems like the most dumb answer to what did you hack ever? And of course, there's systems we hacked and things we got away with and all kinds of stuff like that. But when I look at what the contrarian view I took that had the biggest positive impact on, on my company's trajectory, it was that. Because it was always, I always felt guilty that I wasn't a networker. I always felt guilty that I didn't want to go and schmooze everyone at the YC dinners. I never went up to the speaker. I'm like, this poor person? They don't want a hundred founders being like, hey, here's my idea. Are you interested? Like, no, they're not interested. They don't want to, that's not genuine, you know? And so, Honestly, the hack for me was, and this this started out as a personality constraint, and over time I realized it was actually kind of a superpower. I created genuine connections with a very small number of people. And so a few of the founders in the MyYC batch, a few of the founders that were in the co-working space that we worked out of after, a few of the core investors that invested it as angels in Rainforest, 
those are relationships that they actually are meaningful to me. And because of that, we've had so many follow-on effects, whether it's people joining the company, whether it's new investors investing based off of trust of that mutual friend, um, whether it's meaningful advice and helping getting to the next level as a CEO. And I think it's really easy in our world, especially in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure you've experienced this over and over again, like it's really easy to build these completely surface level relationships, which are just totally transactional. And what I've learned is that you don't really get value out of those. You might get an intro, you might get a retweet, you might get a whatever, but at the end of the day, as a human, there's only a small number of people who you can truly trust. And I think that um, if you're not one of those types of people where networking comes easily to you and you're not one of those kind of people who can just go and schmooze a whole room of people and everyone be like, wow, that guy Trent's amazing. Like, let's <laughs> add him on LinkedIn. <laughs> you know, I'm not one of those people. And I, I felt for a long time that was, that was going to be my downfall as a CEO. But in the end, the, the hack, so to speak, was that, you know, by focusing on meaningful relationships with a small number of people, I, I had a bigger impact than I ever would have playing that, that LinkedIn game. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen that, you know, what you're describing, I've seen a lot of people that, you know, they're, they're super networkers, they play that game, but at the end of the day, I don't know. Um, they seem kind of lonely. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I yeah. Don't know how to put it. Um, well, we've covered a range of topics here. This is <laughs> I know. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, gosh, I, I mean, yeah, uh, only one, which is, you know, and this is annoying, but it, there's no time like the present, you know, as, mm-hmm. as, as we've talked about today, the world is changing. Um, uncertainty abounds, uh, automation increases, the civil unrest is likely to continue to increase. I, I think that, it, you know, I've had a few events in my life recently, where, which have and, and nothing bad for me, but for people around me, which have caused me to take a fresh look at like, oh, this assumption that I'm, I'm here for the next 50 years and I'm here to build a legacy and all that stuff. It's a very tenuous assumption, you know, based on a lot of a lot of good luck. And so I just think that if you have if you're watching this or you're listening to this and you're thinking, hmm there's this thing I've been wanting to do. And, and these guys babbling on, you know, it makes me think like if they can do it. I can. You can do it. Mm-hmm. So go and quit your bloody job <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and try it. You know, just try it. It's it, it, it's really like I, I I get this privilege to work with all these amazing people. You know, these people who have been executives and and had a front row seat to to massive successful companies that all of our lives have been impacted by. And very often they'll they'll be asking me in a one on one like, so Fred, what do you think about this? Right? And I, I manage these people, and in my head I'm often thinking like why are you asking me? <laughs> what do you think I know? I'm just some idiot guy who started the company. And every single time it comes back to that for me, I was the one that was willing to take the leap. I'm not better in any way. <laughs> in fact, I'm worse in most ways. But if you're willing to take that leap and you can control that yourself, sometimes you can get into these incredible positions of influence and, and power to, to really change things. And the only thing that will hold you back from doing that is your own kind of neuroses and anxieties. So if you have that idea within you today, just go and do something about it. It's not going to be easier. It, this is the easiest time it's ever going to be. And I, I actually forgot to ask you earlier in the interview, some of the companies that you worked with. So can, can yeah. you tell us just for some context, just based on your final thoughts there, some of the companies that you're now working with so that 
the audience kind of understands where you're at in your career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, a, a subtle way of saying rainforest is successful today. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we work with really great companies, lots of startups that you haven't heard of some that you have, including, um, you know, square, some later stage companies like kind of Adobe, um, dignity health. Uh, yeah. Just a lot of technology companies that are all trying to grapple with the, the, basically the thread that, that Trent and I have been focused on today, which is how do we deal with an increasingly automated world when the customer expects perfection? Um, so, yeah. Awesome. And where can people find you? Uh, find me. Um, where can they find me? Don't go on my Twitter. My Twitter is just a lot of political ranting about the world. You do not want to follow <laughs> me on Twitter. Uh, go, go to Rainforest QA on Twitter. That's a, a lovely, wholesome set of, of QA best practices and knowledge. No, but if you want to find me on Twitter, my, I'm Fredster S underscore S. Um, and yeah, just don't, don't at me. Awesome. Well, thank you for helping me hack some people's minds with this episode today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure, Trent. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.